and kittens. We are back with another very special stay-at-home self-quarantine episode of the Brando Cast. Spoiler alert. If you have not watched the Peter Jackson documentary, Get Back, the masterclass on the Beatles, you might want to uh, put this on pause for a while. Today, this is his third appearance on the Brando cast. I call him the Professor. I don't know if that's—I don't know if that's his nickname in real life, but it should be, because who better to break down this insane documentary than my guest today? Oh, he's an author. He's a thinker. He's a musician. He's an Anglophile like me. He's Paul Myers. Well, thank you, Brandon. I think I, I think I'm the Professor because I'm not the millionaire. I'm not Gilligan, and I'm not uh, Skipper. So I, I think that leaves me as the professor, but I appreciate your saying so. Well, you know, that, that makes me think, you know, it's often said that you can tell a lot about a person based on their favorite Beatle. Yeah. And I would say the same for uh, someone's favorite member of the Gilligan's Island cast. Right? <laughs> yeah, I don't, I, well, that, I mean, we could get into that. If only there'd been a an eight-hour documentary about the inter- interminglings of the cast of Gilligan's Island. Like, that would be great. <laughs> and if only Alan Hale's Fish House, or whatever the fuck it was yeah, yeah, on La yeah. Cienega, was still open in yeah. Los Angeles. That was the working title for Alan Hale's Fish House, was Alan Hale's Fish House, or whatever the fuck it is. Yeah, I could see why they dropped the last part of it. Arthur Treacher was going to use it, probably. Well, see, that's what I want. I want a good version of Arthur Treacher, uh, and yeah. I'm sure they had a damn good... Uh, uh, fisherman's platter at Alan Hales. Yeah. Okay. Oh, so here we, that's what Murph would have had. Yeah, for sure. Okay. But yeah, let's stick to the Beatles. Here, okay. here we are. <laughs> uh, dude, I honestly, yeah. there was only one person that I wanted to process this with, and my mind is still on fire. So I hope I don't stutter and stumble and stammer because I've got so many thoughts in my head about this incredible project. And I just want to walk through a whole mess of stuff with you because I know that you come to this project with encyclopedic knowledge about (laughs) one of your favorite things of all time. But no, I I know that's fair. However, I just want to know before we really dig into things, what was your overall experience like watching this three-part documentary? You know I don't give short answers, right? Okay. So, so, but I will. Do, I will do my best. Okay. So, my my feeling is I've just been through a group therapy session with people I love very much, and um, it's kind of an intervention. We've all kind of shared some very hard truths about each other, and uh, the difference is, I guess, I wasn't asked to participate. I wasn't asked to sort of share my. You know, well, what does Paul Myers think? You know, but um, but what I I, I came away. Uh, you know, I am a, I am a one of three brothers, so I understand brother dynamics. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my two brothers are very creative, and uh, we have a creative brother dynamic. We have group texts that we share, and we sometimes joke about things. And so I understand that part of the Beatles. I also have been in bands, and I've also seen uh, documentaries like Some Kind of Monster about Metallica. And uh, the PBS series An American Family about the Loud family and and their sort of their disintegration on camera. So I feel like I was prepared for get back. I I would say that my experience of it was I went through a lot of anguish at the beginning, 
because it's as brutal as any Thanksgiving you could imagine. And then it's worth it at the end. And uh, uh, pressure makes diamonds. Sometimes it makes rubble, but pressure makes diamonds. And I think at the end of the day, I think you got a sense of the dysfunctionality and humanness of these rock gods who are not gods. In fact, they're four lads who are really young and not don't know how to talk about their emotions and they don't know how to do. And bands didn't know how to talk about their emotions. Bands didn't know how to make solo careers while keeping the band together. So there's a, over this next conversation, I hope we touch on all of that, but I just want to say that my overall feeling was I went through a journey with some people I love and I came out loving them a little bit more, which is a miracle at this point. Uh, that's ex- my exact experience. I think Mark Marin said something along the lines uh, in a tweet, like uh, I've grown up with the Beatles. I've known them my entire life. I feel like I just got to hang out with them. Yeah. And we know how the story ends. We know how the story continues on through the 70s, 80s, 90s to current day. We know so much about the Beatles, but to watch that stuff, I mean, hindsight is 2020, of course, Mm -hmm. but there was so much about it for me where I was like, oh, you guys are so close to being able to patch this back together, but you're, you're still immature. You're still young. Yeah. The pressure of the world is on you. And as you said, the template hadn't been set yet for how to be in a major band and have a solo career. Yeah. Cause the, yeah. my one big takeaway from get back was, well, they're still inventing rock and roll. Yeah. The reason that we love the Beatles is they're inventing everything in real time. And here they're showing you a very messy breakup Without the ability to say, you know what? We need to take a year off. We need to like stop listening to lawyers. We need to get back to the friendship, but we need some time away. And hey, everybody, it's cool to go do your own thing. Yeah. You know, but it hadn't been invented yet. <laughs> no, it's true. Uh, well, the joke I made to somebody the other day was uh, I'm just paraphrasing it anyway, which was, uh, the Beatles walked so that Phil Collins and Genesis could run. <laughs> what, what I mean by that is, I think you got it right away, but in case you didn't, Phil Collins had a great solo career with like In the Air Tonight, Face Value, n- still managed to have the, the the most commercially successful version of Genesis happened at the same time. And Genesis had, and, and Mike Rutherford did Mike and the Mechanics, you know, and, and so you had that you had this idea that the band was a thing you went back to and could be uh, strengthened by the fact that you'd gone on a, a journey, you know, yeah. and a lot of bands never make that point, you know, uh, and the Beatles certainly had no template. For, there, there's a moment in the film, spoiler, you did give spoiler alerts. There's a moment in the film where George says, everyone's talking about this. Uh, George said, you know, I've got so many songs and at this rate, it'll take me 20 years to get them in. So I'm thinking of doing a solo album and John's, like what? What? What's a solo? And he, and George even says something to the effect of, and you guys could all play on it and everything, but it would just be my record, and then we'll do another Beatles record that would just be right. less pressure to have more of my songs on it, you know. And he's kind of like feeling out the idea of what it is, and unfortunately, you know, you could look at it now and go, oh, that's a great idea. That's a great idea. You know, make your solo record. You know, sort of like when Ringo did eventually to Ringo years later, and he had Paul do a song with him and George did a song with him and John did a song with him. And you're like, that's kind of what Ringo did is he he managed to make the four, the, the three other Beatles be part of his solo career when he needed them to give him that thing. And, uh, you know, I mean, that's a tangent. But my, my point is that, you know, George had the songs 
And the two other guys were just not ready for it. They were, they, they had never taken him that seriously. I mean, right. a little bit. I think Paul, to be honest, comes off looking good here. Paul, um, when he starts playing I Me Mine, Paul goes, Oh, it's good. What's that? I like that. Yeah. And then and then John shows up late for work and John shows up and and George goes to this child place and goes, You want to hear a song I've been working on? And John does not give him much of a chance. And then they go off and play I Me Mine or something, or uh, no, one after 909 or something. And also, oh my God. Um, uh, uh, all things must pass. They're playing all things must pass. Well, and that's it's like a, I, I was going to bring that up in, in this discussion. Go because, ahead, go ahead, bring it now. Uh, well, okay, well, let's let's get into it. A quick tangent. Yoko Ono was shaking her head yes when George was suggesting that they all go do solo albums. Yeah, you know, as a creative person, I think she understood. Yeah, that's a good the, point. The, the importance of that, I and mean, she's sitting there with John on the floor, and her head is shaking. Yes, yes, yes. Great idea. I love it. I love it because she knew John needed to go away and make a solo record, but also come back to the thing that he built from childhood. There's so much about um, this this documentary that I wanted to process with you, and one of the categories was the thrill of seeing songs being created in real time. There's yeah. so many examples in this movie. You know, watching Paul M- McCartney come up with "Get Back" on a bass and just amazing. going dum 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 dum, watching George play "All Things Must Pass," bring it to the band to let the band. You know, suss it out a little bit, not yet knowing where the second verse or chorus was really going to be. Yeah. There's so many moments in this. And I think that that's why it's blowing people's minds to hear songs that we all know. All of these songs are in our DNA. And to hear them, you know, the genesis of these songs is just staggering. You know, for George to come in and say, here's a song I wrote last night. After we were all exhausted, after we were all bickering, but I yeah. went home and I came up with "Here's I Me Mine." And yeah, the other thing too is like I think I think I feel like he he brought in "For You Blue" and uh, "Old Brown Shoe." I feel like he brought those songs in because he realized that um, songs like "All Things Must Pass" and "I Me Mine" were not getting the love, and he thought I want to protect those songs uh, for this little imagined uh, album that I've got in my mind that I haven't quite figured out yet. And so he says, I'm going to write some rockers. Some Remember, he kept saying, I got some fast rockers now. Because he's starting to realize that the tenor that they can all, or the, the place where they all meet, they can all still relate to each other, is the rock and roll Beatles from the Hamburg days and yeah. from the Cavern days. And so when they're having their biggest emotional breakdowns, let's face it, these are baby men who do not know how to deal with emotions and have a straight conversation without going into a radio show sketch. Uh, and or a rock and roll song. So he says, I'm going to bring them a rock and roll song. So he brings them For You Blue, which is great. And the band loves it, you know, because just sweet and lovely. <laughs> they love it, you know. And then even George Martin gets to suggest putting the paper in the strings of the piano, which he'd been told to not produce them. And he said, you know, they say, what can we do to make the piano sound a little different? He wants it to sound like an old record. And George says, well, if you're asking me, you should do this, you know. And it's like, and, and it's it's the reversion to the rock and roll Beatles in a weird way is the way that they find their emotional connection again. And it's also a safe, it's a safe, much like doing those goon show, Peter Sellers voices. Ironically, Peter Sellers does make a cameo and even he goes, this is too weird for me. I'm getting yeah. out of here. Right. <laughs> also, he, I don't think anyone wanted to be on camera, you know, 
the truth is, I mean, they, they trick the Beatles to being on camera most of the time. You know, and even the best conversation in the movie is done surreptitiously in a flower pot. <laughs> yeah, well, the, the, the amazing thing about wanting to get back to the Hamburg uh, Cavern Club days, the rock, because when they're, when they're performing together, they're at their best. And they're smiling and they're yeah. creating and they're, there's no bickering and there's no fighting and there's no thinking about business and thinking about deadlines and all that kind of stuff. The, the amazing thing about that, I think that McCartney also knew that that's what they needed to do to start gluing the band back together. Yeah. They had to get back to their roots. He, his approach to it was just a little controlling at times. And I think it, yeah. I just watched the other people. Just, they got rubbed the wrong way. Yeah. He, of course, says, I don't want to be the boss, but I'm going to be the boss. Yeah. And, and we need to be disciplined right now. And we need to be rocking right now. Rather than fucking off, like I think they really needed to do, they almost yeah, needed to yeah, be in a room for an entire week and just fuck off and play every every other person's song, Elvis songs, Dylan songs. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's it's it was kind it was just amazing to watch that creative process. But you know, to your point, Old Brown Shoe is one of my favorite Beatle cuts. Yeah. It always has been, and and so to hear that. You know, being tossed away as it was, I was like, ah, there was another moment in the in the documentary. I was like, no, 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 please, please go back to that. You guys don't understand. It's a great song. And I do love that after, you know, and there's various reasons that apparently are, you know, backstories about John. John's lack of giving at the beginning, a lot of it, you know, we're hearing that, you know, possibly had to do with the fact that Yoko had just miscarried. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, John and Yoko, I think John mostly, I think, had been into heroin and there's yeah. a lot of things going on that made him just unemotion uh, emotionally unavailable like you know and so we got this paul pushing him to to go further and he's shutting down even more but when they finally decide to put on the two times that they really connect in the movie as a band are when they have someone else around and when when so we'll talk about billy preston in a second because that's a whole other section but i want to <laughs> say when they finally get to the concert mm-hmm. on the roof yeah and you see John really excited to sing Don't Let Me Down for this crowd of lunchtime people and rooftop dwellers. And he is giving 130% of the Beatles to that moment. And Paul is so happy for him. Paul, is he's always just wanted John to do that. He's a John, do that thing that you used to do. You used to be the leader. And, and Paul is happy to be the bass player, having the, and he's having the best time. And I feel like he's having the best time. I know we all, you know, we all, they're open books and mirrors and we write our own emotions onto these things and we guess what they're thinking. I think it was miserably cold up there. I also think George really never did like the idea of the roof. Even when he did it, he was kind of playing off to Ringo a little bit, you know, with Maureen cheering at his back, you know. Uh, but um, but anyway, so that, that, so you know what I mean? So when it came time to present outward what the Beatles was, John said, oh, it's showtime. And he understood Showtime, you know, and that that's a muscle memory too, right? Like that's, I was I was literally hand. just going to say muscle memory to you, yeah, okay, uh, be, be, because I think the power of the Beatles and people don't, I don't think people realize, casual fans don't realize the amount of time they put in to get up to I want to hold your hand and she loves you, you know, the the, the eight eight shows a day in Hamburg, 
Yeah. You know, that was a really tight, powerful live band. This was not a constructed, yeah. constructed band by a record company. These were friends who'd been playing since they were 15 and 14 and 13 years old with George. I mean, yeah. the, the, the amount of live that they had. So, yes, when John is able to plug in live, so powerful. And there were, there were actual moments on the roof of like group movement where my breath was taken away. You and I have grown up seeing the the kind of the constructed videos for for Get Back and Don't Let Me Down, but to see the whole rooftop concert in its entirety, yeah. Also with the shots of the crowd and the British people on the street and what is that? You know, it was just it, it was that's your reward for putting up with the mundane and putting up with conversations that might you make you feel awkward because the payoff in episode three is it's staggering you know i i'd never really heard uh some of the so, like i was amazed that some of the older people on the street were actually the most into it like yeah like, well, that one guy goes, oh it's great it's london isn't it it's the best it's the best the beatles are the greatest right you know it's like it's like i love it i love it you know meanwhile there's that cop you know the cop's like he's like you know, PC, in, 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 PC in Ray Stag. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't, love, love that they got his name. You know, one one thing one thing the cops hate is when you have their name. I know. But um, but um, you're making an argument for defunding right there. But yeah. um, but he, you know, and, they, and you know, and actually, I love that these guys were kind of thuggy because, in a weird way, it's good that they were harassing the Beatles and not uh, harassing local uh, Jamaicans. You know, so. But I, I that's a side note. But yeah. anyway, uh, it it was nice to keep them off the streets that one day. But I, I do love that. Um, also, the staff of Apple were having such fun with them. Like the cops are downstairs, they're going. Well, I think we can get them. Yeah, we can try and talk to them a little bit later. They're not going to be very long. I don't you know, know like, what they're doing up there. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> One yeah. of them says, "I don't know what they're doing up there. I think they're making a film." Yeah, yeah. The, yeah. the cops were nineteen and twenty, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> the, yeah, yeah. The two cops who show up the first time. Yeah, they're kind of like the Keystone cops <laughs> in a weird way, but. Uh, <laughs> But also, one of them is pretty savvy. That I tweeted about this actually. One of them, one of them goes, "But well, couldn't you uh, just dub in the film, dub in the sound later?" Like I'm like, "Holy shit, this guy took film classes, you know? <laughs> couldn't you just run a gobo and a, and a 360 across the thing and maybe dub it in later and do it in post at Pathé?" Right. And like, like, how do you know this, cop? How do you know this? It's like you know, like anyway. But um, uh, uh, maybe he was going to ask him, like, "Are you shooting three cameras in sync?" And you know, how do you do that? You know. <laughs> um, but uh, but anyway, so um, what's interesting too? Oh, it could I could turn a corner if you want. But Peter Jackson, when you see interviews with Peter Jackson, he has that kind of almost Brian Wilson like he can barely get a single sentence out because he's so excited about everything he's done here. And he and he's talking. And he goes and then and we have the fantastic things you have the thing. And then Paul says the thing. And then John and it's like it's kind of you know like he's like. I, I've seen him on Colbert a couple of times and, um, and he, uh, with Chris Willman, uh, he did a, a thing for Variety. And uh, it's just something about Peter Jackson. It's like, I love him because he's so unbelievably uh, nerdy and in love with this work. And he's done such a great job of honoring what's great about them while also giving us absolutely new information, you know, which is kind of what a good documentary does. And he didn't tell us what to think. That's oh okay. This is a whole new area. No, I'm rambling now. <laughs> this is why you have me, Brandon, isn't it? Yes, Brandon. Brandon? Yes, it is. Um, I'm gonna t I'm gonna bring it back to the rooftop, but go. Keep okay, going. Bring it back to the rooftop in a second. But I just want to say, and it's been pointed out by others. Hmm. He presents essentially an immersive eight-hour experience 
with no cutaways to, and I dearly love Questlove and I dearly love Dave Grohl, but, or Elvis Costello, there's no cutaways to contemporary interviews contextualizing this for us. And there's no cutaways to Paul McCartney contextualizing it for us or Ringo or, um, or Yoko or anyone who's still alive. Taylor Swift. <laughs> yeah. Or, or, or Taylor Swift or, 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 you know, Ed Sheeran. Right. And, and uh, one of the Jonas brothers. And you don't have any of those. I mean, I would love to hear BTS's take because maybe they could relate, mm-hmm. but, um, but, but basically how cool is it that the film is both, in your face and not didactic. And that's all I'm going to say about that. And linear. Uh, and yeah. linear. Which, and linear. With which the calendar. I, literally the calendar is a star, one of the stars of the show. Uh, and so to that point, the other thing about the rooftop, and thank you, Peter Jackson, he gets to recreate the rooftop experience for us in yeah. real time. This 40-odd, 50-minute experience, now with multiple cameras, the man on the street stuff is the only cutaway. It's the only uh, yeah. reaction to what the Beatles are doing, to your point. Not yeah. Elvis Costello, not Dave Grohl. Oh, but here's an old man whose son also likes the Beatles, too. Oh, is that up there? Is that who they yeah. are? You know what I mean? And that one woman, that one woman who was like kind of a jaded Londoner who was like, it's like, oh, really? Oh, yeah. Okay. Like, it, like even if she was a Beatles fan, she was like, oh, yeah. It was a PR stunt. Or something. It was like an she, old woman in her bathrobe who was like, oh, they yeah. woke me up. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> they woke oh, us all up, love. They woke us all up. Oh, you know, to like, be <laughs> a, like a time travel moment. Talk about a time travel moment. To be on the street. <laughs> Have you been up on that roof? No. I, I, I've never been inside. I've stood outside the Abercrombie and Fitch several times. Um, uh, I literally, I've taken every time I'm in London and I was in London this summer for, for something. I was there for three months and I would, whenever anyone would hook up with me, like to meet me to say, hi, uh, we'd go for an outdoor walk cause it's still COVID-y and we'd walk around and I would say, let's walk down Savile Row. Because <laughs> it would always, I would always invariably want to go past Savile Row, right? And I, there's two places I take people in that neighborhood. One is the 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 uh, Ziggy Stardust phone booth phone booth area is around the corner from Abbey Road uh, from uh, Apple Studios, and uh, Apple Studios is now on Abercrombie and Fitch. So, yeah, and the, and the cop station's still there, uh, just up the road. Wow! So that's that's the interesting thing too. It's like I wonder if the cops do tours. Can we see the picture of Ray Stark? Whatever his name was. What was his name? Uh, it wasn't Stark. There, well, there was PC Ray Stag, and there Stagg. was like PC Ray yeah. Sturley or something like that. I forget yeah. the short guy. And then the commander, when the command or the sergeant or the commander oh, shows yeah. up, <laughs> then oh, you yeah. know it's really over. <laughs> he was actually su- surprisingly professional. Actually, he came right. in and he said, "So, uh, have two of my constabulary been in here?" Yeah, and they go, "They've gone upstairs." Oh, are they up on the roof then? They're there, are they? Okay, <laughs> and like, and it's. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, I would have felt bad for the Beatles if they hadn't gotten shut down by the police because that it's, was their whole plan. It's the best ending, and for me, not to ruin it for people, but you know, if you're listening to this, you've probably already watched the show. The reaction that McCartney has, the guy who was kind of fighting for a big concert, the guy who was fighting for a a big concert in a in a London park, <laughs> when he sees the cop or the two cops come through the door. You can feel the excitement in his body, and he wants to change the words to get back, get back, and go back to the police station. Almost, he almost mm-hmm. says, because it he knows on the rooftops again. You've been playing on the rooftops again. Yeah. He knows it's powerful. It's the perfect thing to happen. Also, it's so interesting. I was thinking when the police first showed up, like Apple, the the young kids at Apple couldn't say, "Hey, it's the Beatles." 
Like they, they couldn't get away with murder. You know what I mean? Like that was a yeah. very interesting thing to me. Cops didn't care. The shots of the people on the rooftops in the distance was another thing that I just can't get enough of, you know, waving to, you know, a group of office workers, you know, three buildings away. I mean, that's just so incredible. Something I missed in this version, maybe I looked away, is you see the man with the sort of fedora walking across the roof. But in the original Let It Be, there was a shot of him doing the little ladder from one roof to another roof. Yeah. And to me, that was amazing, like a businessman climbing a ladder to get from from one lower roof to a higher roof. And I don't remember seeing it in this version, but maybe I just happened to look away at that moment. Well, that's, you know, that was Peter Jackson's choice. I don't think that that was in there either. I mean, that's yeah. another thing that just separates this project from uh, he the did original. Do something that, that the original um, Michael Lindsay Hogg cut did, which was when they go to the street, I think they had to do this. When they cut away to the street, the audio mix changes to the echoey sound of inside the streets. Yeah. So, it, you know, as you probably know a lot about this stuff too, but when you're making a movie, part of the experience is the psychoacoustics of it. So you want it to sound, you want the audience to feel what it's like in that moment. So you do change things. Like sometimes people will do hard stereo and stuff like that. But this, this sound, I think it really is the actual sound on the street and they had to sync it up in some way uh, so that it was happening exactly because there's no way you could cut out the Beatles audio. Right. Uh, unless they did, unless they weren't playing at that moment that they asked them, but whatever it was, there's a consistency of the echo of the mix that changes from location to location in the cutaways. Anyway, I hope I've described that. In no, the- it's very powerful. Uh, it's not, it's, it's impossible to get a sen- a true sense of how loud it actually was, how loud and clear it actually was on yeah. the street. But it's only a four-story building, so it had to have been, you know, fairly loud, correct? Yeah, and but the PAs weren't that big. Ah, I mean, right. I mean, uh, although they claimed they were really big, and at one point they did have this the the standell columns that were like aiming down at the street, which I thought was a little must be weird too. The to, for the Beatles to play to an audience that isn't like at one point you see they all lean to the railing and look down to see who's watching. Yeah, like Ringo walks out from behind the drum kit. And the, oh, I love that Ringo's kit wasn't nailed down where he wanted it, and so he had to re-nail it the minute he. Well, gets and he stage. he calls out to Mal. He's like, "Mal, it's not nailed down in the right place." <laughs> I I uh, I think we all need a Mal. Like, okay, I well let's a- <laughs> I, I, I let's let's talk about Mal Evans for uh, 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 there were a couple things I wanted to bring up with you. Uh, Mal Evans is one of them. Michael Lindsay Hogg is another. Oh. So let so let's start <laughs> let's start with the good. Let's start with Mal Evans because good for me. Mal. Yeah, he's one of the of the heroes of the movie. And for people listening at home, Mal had been with the Beatles since '63 ish. I'm not even entirely sure about the year. Yeah, but yeah, he, he's but from the nearly from the beginning, and he is their guy. He's their guy who does everything. Yeah, he drives the van in the old days. Yeah, he carries the equipment in the old days. He runs down the street to the shoe shop to bring back shoes for George to look at because George can't go out shoe shopping on his own. Mal runs out and gets the anvil because he knows he's going to get to play the anvil on Maxwell's silver hammer. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Mal gets cigarettes. Mal and, and Mal deals with the cops. I mean, his role with the Beatles and I did a little bit of Googling about him after I, you know, I finished watching the documentary I mean, talk about someone who had a front row seat to the whole thing. Mal Evans, so great. Yeah. No, Mal Mal is, and I say this, uh, I don't want it to sound bad, but Mal has a kind of a sort of like gentle giant. Uh, I don't know how 
I don't know how bright he was. Like he seemed like he was emotionally intelligent and he seemed like he knew enough about the world, but he sort of looks like a guy who, I don't know what his other job in life would be, (laughs) but, but he was, they were lucky to have him and he was lucky to have them. And it was within the Beatles ecosystem. It was good that they could keep Mal around and that Mal was loyal and uh, able and, you know, and kind. And, uh, you know, it has to be said, you know, it didn't end be- well for him later. Yeah. No. And I'll tell people listening to the podcast about that. It, it's a crazy story. Again, Mal, Mal is the recurring swimmer and help. Uh, mm-hmm. Mal is mm-hmm. shooting the footage when they're, where they're in India at Rishikesh on their med- on their famous meditation retreat. Um, but Mal moved to Los Angeles in the early 70s, around the time that Lennon did. Lennon came out to L.A., as we all know, to kind of, you know, blow it out with Mickey Dolenz and Al Cooper and, yeah. <laughs> Harry, and Harry Nielsen. Nielsen. Yeah. And he actually, he lived not too far from where I am right now. But Mal moved to L.A. And I think that Mal started trading bits of memorabilia for big cash. And Mal was working on his memoir. And the the long story short is he was going through a really horrible breakup. And he was living in an apartment right by the Grove on 4th Street near Fairfax. People listening to this, if you live in L.A. And he may or may not have been on Valium one night, despondent over the breakup. The girlfriend finds him, calls the guy that he was writing the memoir with because Mal had an air rifle. Not an Mm. assault rifle, but an air rifle. Mm. Uh, Co-writer comes over to the apartment. Mal is despondent, not reacting, still on Valium. And the guy called the police. Four LAPD officers showed up. They claim Mal pointed the air rifle at them, and he was shot and killed right there in a very nice little Tony section of lower West Hollywood, I would call it. Uh, Is that Hancock Park? Not really. it's, It's just the area... You know, it's not mid Wilshire. It's the area okay, around yeah. the museum, but it's uh, yeah, it's I right near Third Street. Yeah. yeah, but it's right near Third and Fairfax. It's, these are oh, really yeah. nice Spanish style duplexes and really nice apartments. Right. And Beverly Hills adjacent, whatever you want to call it. Right. Um, but how fucking sad. No, it's very it's very sad, and um, and you know, and as they call it, an ignominious end to uh, like, and a lot of the, it sort of shows what happened though in the seventies. Um. After the breakup, this is the stuff that's not in Get Back. Um, a lot of the a lot of the principals had um, some harder years. To you know, Ringo probably drank more after the Beatles than he had during the Beatles, and they also had more free time. And uh, you know, certainly it didn't help that the Hollywood Vampires thing existed. Uh, the club where they you know they would all go drinking, and you know, Mickey and Harry and Alice Cooper and all those people. But um, but uh, you know, Ringo had a bad time. John's you know. Uh, long weekend with May Pang was that time. Yeah, and uh, George had some tough times in the mid seventies. Yeah, because he was true. struggling with consumption of stuff. Yeah, I mean, and certainly, I mean, it's the story of the sixties is is the the excesses of the seventies. I mean, <laughs> and not to get all like Tarantino on you, but I mean, starting with the sort of the years of Altamont Manson murders and all that, the end of the hippie dream the beginning of uh, the commercialization of, you know, the, the, the singer songwriters and the Laurel Canyon scene and all of that. So then you add to that chemicals, like as opposed to just organic drugs 
and chemical dependencies and alcohol, you know, unchecked alcohol use. And just uh, and a lot of people who didn't know quite what their mission was anymore, which that's the other thing that gets people into trouble is boredom and a lack of direction. Or as, as John Lennon once said, you know, money for, was it money for dope, money for rope, you know, like. Well, yeah, yeah. well, look, I mean, <laughs> you know this, I live here. There are few more dangerous places for a young 30-something. Because yeah. when Lennon's in Los Angeles, he's in his very early 30s. That's right. Poor Mal Evans is in his early 30s. When you're here with cash, but no direction, yeah, and, and people around you who will enable you, like, bye-bye. Yeah. Bye-bye. Yeah. You, you have the connections. Yeah. like, And that's what happens to so many young Hollywood actors. Yeah. You know, and, and, and the thing is, I think there was no counseling, you know, it's funny because some kind of monster came up in my head recently about this. And I was thinking, you know, the whole thing about some kind of monster is that, you know, Metallica were the first band that I knew of on camera to have an in, you know, in-house counselor an in-house therapist. And, you know, we didn't have therapists. We, they didn't have therapists for bands in those days. You know, the Beatles could have used one. And, you know, it well, was, would that have been Brian Epstein? I don't know, but I think Brian gave them all uh, um, a common uh, teacher figure so they could all be children around him. And yeah. he would say, no, no, straighten up. You know, you've got a gig at nine o'clock. You need to get to bed, at, you know, and and you have to show up at the studio at nine. And, and, and they would have worked out all that Libya stuff. It would have all been worked out ahead of time. They would never have had to argue on camera about whether they're going to bloody Libya. Right. Because it would have been Brian has done the deal and he's consulted with them and said, we have an offer to go on a cruise to Libya and we'll shoot the concert there. It'll be two days in, two days out. You'll all be home and we'll and you can go to Spain afterwards. Yeah. But it but instead it was, you know, what should we do? Let's dream big. Oh, you know, and like and and they had no direction. So they still kept calling him Mr. Epstein because they still needed. And this is that whole thing about Paul being the reluctant leader, you know they still needed someone to say the trains are going to run on time and they, they still wanted to be children. Paul wants to be a kid. He wants to play, get back with his hand, slap in the bass and then find the song. He doesn't want to be saying, John, what, what have you written today? Remember that's there's a scene where he yells oh, yeah. at John. Yeah. You, you haven't done your homework. Yeah. You know, and he doesn't yeah. want to be that guy. He doesn't want to be a scold, you no. know? And yeah, yeah. it's amazing because it, they also acknowledge around the same time that, They've been in the doldrums since Brian passed away. They probably hadn't processed his death correctly. Because yeah. again, to your point, no therapy, uh, yeah. no therapist. Therapy wasn't a thing that was readily available to people back then. Yeah, and they're um, English. They were English and, too, so they might have been from that period, right? And bury it. So it, it, it. So the loss of that figure in their life, I think that's such a. I'm glad that they acknowledged that in the film. I'm glad it was verbalized because at yeah. least that the, there was acknowledgement of it. But that would have been the person that I think would have said, uh, guess what guys, I'm firing Michael Lindsay hog because yeah. every idea that comes out of that guy's mouth is garbage. That was another thing I wanted to bring up with you. Yeah. Michael Lindsay hog. Holy yeah, I mean, moly. Look, let's give, let's give him the credit for the things that he did. Well, so you know, the Beatles Revolution and Hey Jude videos are yes. are good. Yes. And Rolling Stones Rock and Roll Circus, I think, is pretty cool. And if the Beatles had been more functional, they would have hired him to do whatever it was they had decided to do. But the problem was he started to become, I, I, I this is my 
uh, completely my thing. And if Michael Lindsay Hogg's listening, I would love to hear what his take on this is. But it seems to me that he wanted to become one of the Beatles. Like, oh, it seems like he wanted 100%. to feel like an equal. And he kept sort of, you know, he kind of, it was a little like succession watching, you know, what, you know, watching Kendall Roy flip out or something. It was just a little bit like he kept saying, you know, and I'm, and France is coming. And they go, well, who, what's France? And they go, oh, it's, it's my code name for Ringo. It's like, why do you have a code name? We don't need a code name. And then later he says, JR won't like it. The JL won't like it. PM's, PM's not going to like what JL just said. And like, what's he like directing the real housewives of Liverpool? Like, it's like, it's, it's, he's stirring the pot and, and he's also give up the bloody Libya idea. It's just, it, it wasn't going, it wasn't flying. Ringo already said he didn't want to do it. You know, Primrose Hill, reasonable. Primrose Hill was a reasonable idea. And I still think that would have been great. But yeah, and, and then the other thing was the oh the sickest part was he's talking about could do a concert at a hospital, you know, but not really sick kids, just kids with broken legs, you know? And an orphanage. Even <laughs> Lennon was like, uh yeah, no. <laughs> We're not gonna what's the biggest charity in the world? The, the the thing that drove me crazy about him is that there he also his emotional awareness was nothing because if you're around them all day, you should see that they're struggling They're but they're trying to work through it. Please don't walk in and drop a, another bomb on them and put pressure on them. Like we've got to figure out where we're going to play right now, guys. Yeah. You know, that was like another, like these self-imposed restraints and deadlines and constraints at a time when, you know, they just needed to be free a little bit. I think that that was another thing that led to the, the overall dysfunction. Uh, it could not have helped to have that guy lurking around, you know, trying to make them decide what they were going to do when they weren't ready to talk about it. But I will say one of the cool things about him and several other of these so-called villains of the piece hmm. is that they gave the Beatles a chance to uh, gang up against somebody. So he's one of them. Yeah. So there are times when Michael Lindsay Hogg says something and you see a rare moment of John goes, John goes, yeah, bloody hell, not that. And then George, like, I'm not doing that. That's a stupid idea, you know? And and it gave them a chance to sort of once again see an enemy. And once they have a common enemy, yeah. whether it's putting on a killer show or um, or Michael Lindsay Hawk. And the other common enemy is when Dick James comes in, the publisher, and he starts talking about you know all the deals he's making. And he's trying so hard to impress them with like, it's a very big deal. And it's like, do people still buy sheet music? You know, like, and they're sort of like making fun of him. And one, at one point he says to Paul something like, um, and we'll be, uh, we'll be, of course, we'll be controlling all those songs. And he goes, don't be so, don't be so sure. <laughs> Don't be so sure. Like, like, like he said, and he walks away. They literally walk away. They turn their back on Dick James, who then follows them over to the drum riser to keep talking. Like, read the room, man. You know. Well, and, you know more than anybody. Creative types have to put up with a lot of people that they wouldn't necessarily hang out with in real yeah. life. <laughs> you know. No, but it, but it, in that case, it was very clear. Yeah. And then, and then this is also the, the thing that the film sort of gets across too, which is, you know, John, for whatever, like we discussed, emotional like uh, unavailability uh he has been hanging out with the stones and, and michael Lindsay hogg is also from that stones project and so he's been hanging out with the stones and he hears about the royalty deal that you know alan klein has got them yeah and john mm -hmm. is so looking for the next mr epstein mm -hmm. and the next person who but he also just does has probably has a distaste for the business part but he says I want to get me one of those monsters, but have it be on my side. Yeah. And so, but Glenn Johns is trying to tell him, I don't know if I like that guy. 
You know, just look out for that guy. It's an but, incredible historic so, moment. It he's is so high on the idea of Klein. He really, and this is, you know, people talk about broke up the Beatles. It may also be that at that point, Paul looks at Dick James, like hovering around like a shark. Mm-hmm. And he sees Alan Klein being brought in by John, who's just basically saying, I don't want to have to think about this. But Paul wants to go, how about we actually think about it? And, and we'll hire somebody who is somebody that we all trust. And instead they all, you know, they've all gone off to Ellen Kleinland and now it's Paul has no other choice but to bring in his own father-in-law. You know? Right. And brother-in-law. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's what it was. Yeah. yeah no, right. no, but both the father Eastman's, and the yeah. brother, the ace, both. Eastman's. That's right. That's right. I was thinking of the father first, but yeah, you're right. Right. No, both. But, but it's, it's an incredible moment in Beatles history just to hear Glenn John say like, no, no, he's kind of difficult. And I, I quick tangent. I wanted to talk about a common enemy. I, when they, when George pulled out beggars banquet, I wanted them, I was dying for them to sit down and put that on in the studio and listen to beggars banquet right. and comments on it. I was dying for something like that, but the Alan Klein thing, and people don't know, uh, you know, Alan Klein, you know, they will come to understand years later that he was ripping them off. And, um, you know, it's another thing that led to that, that acrimony in the seventies that did not allow them to come back together. Correct. Well, yes, but there is also an element that Alan Klein brought in something. Unfortunately, he was the wrong man for the right job, which yeah. was so Apple was an a egalitarian utopian, you know, <laughs> born of hippie ideals with with too much money. So they decided, you know, they built the Apple clothing store, the Apple studios with bloody Alex, magic Alex with his mindless inventions that they were under the spell of <laughs> in the stupid guitar with the reversible neck and and the studio that doesn't work. And and so Apple was hemorrhaging cash and they were not getting a good royalty rate. So the two things that Alan Klein brought in was a renegotiation of their terms, but he also pared down Apple. Yeah. And this is what killed like, you know, what uh, was it? Richard DeLello, is that his name is? The guy who wrote The Longest Cocktail Party, which was a, a book about how the excesses at Apple. And it, it was published, I think, by Rolling Stone many years ago as a book. And, and I'm a big fan of Derek Taylor, who was running this yes. like, Apple PR at the time. And he talks about how much fun it was at Apple, but, you know, famously people would come in and just walk away with typewriters, you know? So they didn't really have, they didn't really have a lot of what you call control in that room. And, 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 and they, it was all good ideas. Any idea would work. And, you know, they, they, you know, so they needed someone. I just happened to think my opinion as someone who's more than a casual Beatles fan I think Alan Klein was the wrong person for the right job. You know, that's oh, a hundred percent. I read not to bring it back to Mal Evans that Alan Klein was like, "Wait a minute, who's this guy, Mal, and why is he living like a king?" No, 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 no. He's a PA, but he's living this fabulous. No, no, no. He's fired, and the yeah. other Beatles are like, "Well, no, 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 no. You can't, you can't fire Mal. Yeah, the, he's our guy." Yeah. Uh, but you know, to to come in and and. Uh, you know, they certainly couldn't have gone with someone like Don Arden. That's for sure. Yeah, well, you know, and I'm sure there was there was. I don't know if his name came up, but I'm sure you know to some extent you would think about you know that's the kind of people that were available in London, and 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 certainly the history of. I'm not going to say Don Arden's a mobster because I'm not the person who says that. Right. Let's say that he was. Um, you know, people. You know, Tommy James' career famously, you know, was Morris Levy of Roulette Records. You know, the, I think it's Morris Levy, yeah. And the the the, uh, the idea that there were so many mafiosa involved, and if you've ever, ever read Hitman, the Frederick Dannon book, 
literally the mafia was involved in so many of the behind the scenes things in the music business. So it's not unusual that mobster style tactics, especially British mobsters, uh, not to say Alan Klein was a mobster either, because I, I do believe that I do not need to be sued by Abco today. But, uh, <laughs> um, but uh, I'm saying that some pers- some people might have said that of, of, of Alan Klein. Um, there's also, unfortunately, this is this. Okay, okay, now I'm tripping over myself. Sorry. <laughs> but the problem with dissing everybody in any context in this is mm-hmm. there's anti-Semitism behind a lot of the dissing of Alan Klein. Sure. Uh, I, I know Ray Davies, I went to see his musical and I felt like the way they portrayed Alan Klein in that musical, uh, 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 Sunny Afternoon, uh, the way they portrayed Alan Klein was a classic sort of British take on, on a very Jewy voice. Is that what we call it? I totally understood. Say. Yeah. And, and, and I feel like they were trying to say that he was a money grubber in mm-hmm. quotes, you know, right. and that's, that's their, way, their way of saying Jewish person. And uh, I don't know if that's true. And the same reason that people, I will understand people being irritated that Yoko was there for a certain amount of reasons, but generally the problem is it's never too far from she's a woman and she's a Japanese person. Oh, and, 100%. And, and, and that, what I call the unpleasant aftertaste of any comments about, about Alan Klein, about Yoko Ono. And I don't know what the, the Michael Lindsay Hogg stuff, I think is just that he was, he's like a safe villain almost because you look at him and you think, well, He's just like, he just has that Kendall Roy energy, you know? No, no, I totally understood. I, you know, the, the interesting thing about British management, and I talked to, with Michael DeBar about this a little bit. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. When I had him, you know, he basically said there was a grand, that's all there were, were mobsters. Peter yeah. Grant, um, yeah. Don Arden, who people listening at home, that's Sharon Osbourne's father, uh, you know, because it was a rough business where there was a lot of cash. A lot, and when there's a lot of cash flow, <laughs> there's going to be some unsavory characters, and you need your own unsavory characters to kick ass and stop that stuff. Like you need your own mobster to yeah. stop the other mobsters. But yeah. you know, again, going back to the original point, it's an amazing piece in the movie where Glenn Johns is basically saying to John Lennon. Uh, eh, yeah, I'd pump the brakes a little bit on Alan Klein. I don't think <laughs> he's the, the easiest exactly. guy, right? Okay, so let's say you brought up the name. I think someone who comes through this movie with history being rewritten right in front of us as we're watching the documentary is Yoko. Yeah, and and I that my whole thing is like I know that it was controversial when she showed up during the White Album. John has just broken up with Cynthia, who they've all known for years and years. And now here is this performance artist. Uh, We don't know exactly, but John is just mad for it. Now now she's in the studio. She's in the recording together. And wait, wait. She has ideas like what's going on. And it broke the protocol of not having other people or girlfriends in the studio. Like I get all that. But my takeaway was what. Ever you guys needed to do to keep John around? Because yeah. even John at 35% is still going to give you gold. Yeah. Like whatever you need to do. And she's not that intrusive. No. You know, and to see McCartney playing drums, you know, while they're, you know, screwing around in the studio and letting Yoko do her Yoko screams, like that. It was amazing to me. And to the moment where Paul McCartney says, oh, yeah, she's all right. Yeah. 
And it's history that could have been stopped, the narrative of Yoko, 50 years ago. Yes. It really could have. All it would have taken was one person like Paul to stand up and say, no, no, we love Yoko. Yoko's kind of cool. Yoko does art while we were performing, and she drew this painting the other day. Like, I wanted to know when you cut to Yoko, uh, you know, doing that sort of Japanese script. Yes, right. I was like, where's that? How, and how much is that worth today? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I also loved it. I thought it was very touching when Heather, uh, Linda's daughter, Heather, comes in. And, you know, they have such endless patience, even John, for her being so hyperactive. I mean, so clearly, you know, she's as starved for attention as George is in that moment. And she's really cute and she's fun. And at one point, she starts singing like Yoko, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and John yells over, Yoko! <laughs> Like, check it out. And I love that. It felt like, you know, and I actually do feel like, you know, when Paul's playing the bass during the big freak out, or I think he's playing the drums as well, but there's a point where they have the big freak out and it's, it's the angst of George has left the band and, and, uh, and, you know, and just, you know, just that, that whole, that whole moment of this is how they, this is how they relate. This is primal scream in ironically, because John and Yoko did actual primal scream, but this is the moment where, they don't know how to talk. No one's ever really, they're four Liverpool lads who didn't really have a lot of, I mean, I'm presuming all of this, by the way, I'm sure. Yeah. You know, my, my, my good friend, Mike McCartney listens in, he'll, he'll say, Paul, you've got it wrong. But, um, but it, the presumption I have, and again, based on, you know, being an amateur beatologist is that they didn't have the skills, you know, they didn't have the mad skills you need to sort of, talk like adults, you know, because they were kids and they, they were, were kids. not, and they were men, men at a time when men weren't taught to have any kind of, they were uncomfortable with emotions. Like Paul, Paul and John loved each other. Yeah. But the, sometimes that contempt came out of that, you know, and George was left going, Hey, you guys get a room or listen to my new song. One of the two, but I'm leaving. I'm, I'll be leaving the band now. See you in the clubs, you know? And, and, and that is like, again, he didn't know how to say, I'd like to have a meeting to tell you all that I'm being neglected. You know, instead it's like the only way I can get your attention is to leave the group. And I think he really did plan to leave the group. And I think they talked to him the first time they went over and it did not go well. I love that. It did not go well. Hmm. Um, that's a movie, by the way, I want to see that movie. I want to yeah. see uh, a play based on the visit to, uh, to, uh, John's to George's house. You know? Well, I would imagine there was a lot of tea and toast uh, that's the, <laughs> the real winner, I think, is the tea and toast marketing board. Um, who uh, and cigarettes spent, and cigarettes, and, <laughs> and to some degree the Libyan tourist board. I think you know right. just the constant reminders to try and visit Libya. Tripoli, it's available. It's a vacation yes. destination. And you know, can you imagine if they'd done the carnival cruise? I mean, that would have been uh, so weird. Well, I'm, well, but again, they're inventing rock and roll as we go along. Now, fucking Weezer has a cruise. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> Todd Rundgren was on a cruise. I mean, yeah, I, I know. It's uh, it, it it's interesting, like too, because. Because, yeah, I, I, there's so many things that the Beatles could have been the first to do. And that was one of the things that they, at the time, wisely passed on. Because who knows? I don't know. But I mean, also, Ringo was like, I'm not, not, leaving, not leaving the country. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I still think Primrose Hill. Having just, I spent the summer in London yeah. uh, working on something. And I uh, was so ble- blessed to be able to walk around some of these uh, locations like I walked down Abbey Road all the time when I was there. I, I was staying in the north, 
like I was staying in that West London area mm-hmm. and I was staying like like Camden and then Primrose Hill and Regent yeah. So Park. describe Primrose Hill for people. I guess in terms of LA Griffith Park, maybe, but different mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. it's a hill mm-hmm. and, but it's a public park and it's a little like central park in a weird way, but it's a hill. Mm-hmm. So all the paths like lead around the hill and then up the hill. It's very much like a San Francisco hill, to be honest, mm-hmm. if you've ever been up here, mm-hmm. kind of reminds me of Dolores Park a little bit, um, which is off, you know, off uh, Valencia in the mission. And so, uh, but anyway, it's a hill and you can just got a 360 view. Uh, uh, I actually just posted a picture on Twitter today of the hill that I took. And it, it would have been the view the Beatles would have had if they'd played there. I actually, as I said, it was I was at the hill that they did that the, where the Beatles never played that concert. Um, but uh, it, and the thing about it is, it would have been the same public stunt. They would have probably started playing. They probably would have set it up like the way Jimmy Fallon would do it today, where no one knows why they're doing it. And then all of a sudden, the Beatles show up, and it's the Beatles. And there's no cell phones, so nobody would be uh, putting it on YouTube. Um, and people would be going home maybe to get their cameras and they would have done that and maybe they would have got arrested, but it would have been actually kind of a fun outdoor concert and they would have had a 360 view of London Mm. and it would have been a very London centric, the same way that the rooftop is, you know, it, it, in many ways, uh, London is a star of the show too. and, and, And get back, you know, because it's the Beatles living in London in January, 1969 you know, and I mean, I'm in love with that era. I'm in love with everything from 65 to 69, you know, and I actually first visited England in 74, you know, and it was the first time I'd ever been to England and it was already changed, but the sixties would have been, you know, I mean, everything, all the things you and I love were happening between like 64, 65, 66, 66 is when it gets mod and, you know, revolver and all these things. And, it's just, you know, everything's cool in London back then. Well, I think I've told you this before on this podcast. If, you know, if I could build a time machine, that's one of the rock and roll eras that I would absolutely yeah. love yeah. to go to. I'd love to sneak into the bag of nails and hang out. I don't have to meet anybody. I just want to be there when Townsend is there, when Ringo is there. I just want to be, you know, hanging out in London in the late 60s because it's about to change again because this yeah. period of time is so interesting. Led Zeppelin has now formed. The Yardbirds right. have just basically died. Right. And Jimmy Page out of the ashes is, you know, Led Zeppelin. It's 1969. Black Sabbath is this horrible band of of miscreants from Birmingham is is about to put out their first record. Like it's all of the the who are getting are are starting to feel uh like they're a real fucking powerful rock band. You know, you yeah. talk about the rock and roll um the Rolling Stones rock and roll circus. You know, uh, one of my favorite televised performances of any band in the history of rock and roll is the Who's performance of A Quick One While He's Away from that show. And legend has it that it was so good that the Rolling Stones shelved that project that John participated in, people. That's right. With Clapton and Keith Richards, uh, because they were embarrassed by the the Who. Isn't Tony from Sabbath? With Jethro Tull on that, he is. He, yeah. I mean, he was officially in Jethro Tull for yeah. about two seconds. Tony Iommi, um, yeah, and and he decided, nah, I, I want to do my. But own that, thing. that's the and that's the uh, that's a really cool Jethro Tull lineup sound like yeah. that. Yeah, no, it's pretty great. And yeah, the Stones, the Stones, I think, yeah, they didn't. 
they didn't come off too well in that. And I can see why <laughs> for them, that's uh, ironically Michael and Z hog. So it's their, let it be in a weird way. The film that they didn't want out for a long time. Cause it didn't make them look good. You know? Yeah. Who well, knows what Michael Z hog was suggesting for them, you know, <laughs> which, which broken leg hospital that uh, he pitched to them. You know? Well, he got them to do a circus. Well, right, yeah, right. <laughs> I love seeing John in Get Back practicing. And now, ladies and gentlemen, your host, the Rolling Stones. It's the best. It's the best bit. God damn it, is he funny? That's you know, you know, some of my positive takeaways from Get Back is that all the Beatles are basically exactly who you know they are in your yeah. in your heart of hearts. That McCartney is this passionate musician, and that George is this deep thinker, and Ringo is just the best guy, and John is just you know he's John. He's unique. He's narcissistic. He's hilarious. He's got that addict personality. You know, uh, yeah. but yeah. God damn it, is he naturally funny uh, to the point where when Peter Sellers was standing next to him, I was like, had you chosen to be a skilled, disciplined comedian, you could have achieved that, John. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I totally know what you mean. Yeah. No, John has that, um, you know, my parents are from Liverpool, so we talked about that before. But, you know, the Scouser sort of it's a tough guy. Wit. What's Scouser? Scouser is uh well actually Scouse is the lang is the nickname for the slang of the way Liverpool people talk. Wow. And 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 uh there's also a food called Scouse, which is uh sort of um it's a mashup of it's sort of like you put everything in the frying pan, you know. It's just and they're also known as bubble and squeak, ironically enough, which I mean I could get into the whole etymology of uh Liverpool terms. The other term you hear a lot is the term scally. Someone from Liverpool like is like a a lad who who uh, t- tough guy, but has a sarcastic sense of humor, you know. And again, these are my my uh, interpretations of those words rather than any dictionary, because my parents spoke this. My wow. parents, my parent, my father could be incredibly sarcastic and and but loving, and at the same time, like you know, he could be uh, a little cruel at times with his jokes, you know. And, uh, you know, I'll work that out with my own therapist. Thank you very much. But uh, but when I see John snarking at everybody, I sort of feel like it's painfully familiar, uh, but at the same time loving, because I, I kind of go, oh, that's just how they talk. That's just, and John and George, um, excuse me, and Paul is, Paul can give and get, but Paul, has, to be honest, Paul doesn't have the speed of, uh, when he plays around with a John concept, it's a little like, oh, do, yeah, let's do funny voices. And it's, Paul's thing is that he knows how to bring it back to music or he'll say like, right, lads. And that's just his way of saying, I'm going to make a funny voice, but I'm also saying, let's get back to work, you know, and this is the stuff that you get out of get back. So, and the other thing I got to say, people are listening. If they're listening at all at this point, I just go on a tangent, but, but Ringo, the thing I love about Ringo, I've always loved Ringo's beats. I've yeah. always loved the way he, but the thing I never realized is he's such a good listener. Yeah. He could sit there seemingly bored listening to Paul and John or George hash something out. And then as soon as it starts to cook, he goes, Oh, how about like this? And he just sits behind the kit and just like, we get back when they're, when Paul's banging away at the bass on get back and he's kind of got an idea and he's playing all the rhythm parts on his right hand because he's really trying or left hand in this case, he's really trying to make the to give across a rhythm. Right. But he knows he's going to simplify his part later when Ringo gets there. So he does that. And then finally Ringo gets an idea, gets up there and he hasn't quite done the shuffle yet. Right. But he's, um, he's, he's, he gets up and immediately you feel the bass drum, the boom, boom, 
you know, like, and he, and they know, and, and just, just the way he did that. And a couple of times he did that too, just in his fills too, like in don't let me down, like, don't let me down, you know, he's got this like, and like, just, and also that, that way he plays the hi-hats and don't let me down like the Oh man, just, and he just, I don't think he wastes anything. Like he doesn't overplay. He listens, he lets them work it all out. And then he comes in and says, how about this? You know, he, to see the kitchen rag on the snare yes. was kind of oddly mind blowing to me uh, because it was so consistent throughout the whole movie. I mean, Ringo, I hope to God that he goes back on the road for one more Ringo's all-star band, because I am dying to see of one final sort of Ringo iteration, please, please, oh, Joe Walsh, Todd Rundgren, you know, fucking Colin Hay from Men at Work, whoever Lucather. you, the, the guy Lucather. from Mister and Mrs. Steve, well, Steve Lukather, my God, Luke, Toto's the going, force, Luke, <laughs> Toto's going back on a tour, but I want to see, I want, I really want to see that one more time because it's, I mean, Ringo, God, he just put up with so much. Um, I, I just want to say, I, I, I had a chance to see the Ringo All Star Band. And it was kind of a funny, sad story. My father-in-law uh, was really sick and, and and was dying, and he died. And, and but I I know Todd Rundgren now because I wrote the book with Todd Rundgren, and we're, we're I'd say we're friends. And he, uh, I said, can I? I'd love to meet Ringo. Can I come to one of your shows? And if you play in the Bay Area, and just come backstage, I just want to meet him, shake his hand, and you know, or maybe even if he doesn't shake hands, I'll just you know wave at him. And he said, sure. I'm like, great. And then my father-in-law was getting sick and was, mm. we had to be there for him. So I had to go back to Toronto. I thought, okay, I'm a big man. I'm making this decision. I will gladly pass up my chance to Ringo, to meet Ringo Starr. Ringo Starr has a cold and cancels the last five dates of the tour. Never played San Francisco on that tour. So I did the right thing, right? I mean, I, I, but I also had the, the sort of pleasure of knowing that I didn't really FOMO on this thing. I didn't miss it because right. it didn't happen. Right. But it, it, it still, it still was one of the things where like almost met Ringo Starr. I can, it could still happen. So yes, he should tour again just to meet Paul Myers. That's, my, that's the only reason. My girlfriend said that uh, she saw him in, in Erwan, which is a uh, high-end grocery store in uh, West Hollywood. Uh, not too long ago. It, there's an and, error on, on Lincoln Boulevard too, right? Yes, there is. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, but the one that's on Beverly, uh, okay. your CBS, yeah. and she said, you know, he walked into the place and, you know, everyone, you know, even young people were like, oh shit, Ringo Starr is in, in Erwan right now. <laughs> in, in a city where you see celebrities, especially at Erwan, um, all the fucking time. Paul, we've been nerding out for a full hour. I didn't realize that. <laughs> Can I just sing though? He's a real Air One man <laughs> shopping in an Air One. Anyway, whatever, because it's nowhere. It's an anagram. Anyway. You got it. You uh, got anyway, it. Uh, is it uh, so? Have we hit the bell? Have we hit the bell? We've hit the bell. I mean, you know, do people really need to listen to us talk about the Beatles for two no, hours? They no, should. No. Yes, yes, yes. Well, also, this is like my third appearance on your show. They must, uh, at this point, be thinking, what the hell is he doing? Well, you there's know, only but, it's only you. It is only you to talk about this. And I, I just cannot thank you enough. Oh, for, thank you. Uh, it's just so fun. Um, did you have a favorite song from Let It Be? Um, in the movie, like watching them work out, get back, or I dig a pony, or two of us. Was there one of those songs that you really loved watching on roll? Because I'll play us out with that. Skip get back because we talked about it a lot, but I think <laughs> don't let me down. I mean, I don't know. Hold on a second, hold on a second. 
While you're thinking, I will say quickly that Don't Let Me Down was so interesting to me because it comes together so marvelously on the roof, but it's a song that caused strife early on. Like on day six, seven, they're all getting kind of tired of singing Don't Let Me Down, and yeah. and, and they're kind of tired of Paul kind of trying to orchestrate the whole thing. But Do you know what I think? It's I, amazing. Now, here's the answer for the song to play out, okay? Yes. It's because it exemplifies, it's the most Let It Be-ish song on the record, and it's also a great example of Billy, and it's a great example of Paul and John, I've Got a Feeling. Because I've Got a Feeling mm-hmm. has mm-hmm. the everybody had a hard year, mm-hmm. and it's they're working together, and you've got Billy going on the piano, like electric piano. And to me, when I think of Let It Be, I think of I've Got a Feeling first. For some reason, that's the one that I remember as being in, integral to that session, and they, they rehearsed it all the way through. And, you know, yeah, Don't Let Me Down's great. There's no bad there's no bad things, but I think I've got a feelings are great encapsulation. So I have never felt more sure about anything in my life. Okay, I love it. Let's let's just let's just give Billy Preston thirty seconds of love because, oh my God, I, also so stylish when he walks in the room. But the oh. respect the respect that the Beatles already have for him, yeah, because uh, they knew him from back at in Hamburg. They were right. They needed someone. They just needed someone to play the organ, to play the piano, so they could work out everything else. And my God, was it fun watching. I didn't realize how in doubt deep he went in with them on those sessions. Oh, yeah, no, he's, he's you know, the fifth Beatle, really. If yeah, you will. yeah, absolutely. And to hear him working out stuff with John, uh, that was incredible, too. Is he the only guy who's ever had a credit on, on a single? Like, uh, like it was the Beatles with Billy Preston on Get Back, right? Well, I, I would you, I mean, would you include Cliff Richard in in that kind of thing, or is it different because no, no, the, they I mean, assisted the Beatles, him on the Beatles. I mean, yeah, no, I as well. Did they credit Clapton properly? No, right. Uh, I remember at the time you didn't. It was an album track, and they didn't even have album credits in those days. Right. I don't think unless well, it was, really it was interesting friend. to hear Paul going like, "How are we gonna? We should pay Billy. We should give him. You know, when they were talking about like, well, he's not a day player. Yeah. he's oh, he's better than that. that." That was hilarious because they they had talked privately about, "Do we have to pay him? Do we owe him right. scale?" Right, right. And then later they go, "You having a good time, Billy? Like you, you're just doing this because you like it, right? <laughs> right. It, it's what you say to someone when you don't want to pay them. It's right. Like, you're doing this for the, you're doing this for exposure, right? Like that's like how many people at open mic nights and stuff. You know that sort of thing, like." Yes, for the for the privilege of creating <laughs> with professionals. Oh dear! Welcome anyway, to Los yeah, Angeles. Billy, God bless Billy, um, and go listen to his solo records and and his his appearance on uh, Bangladesh concert when he sings "That's the Way God Planned It." It's like so amazing. Billy Preston, out of was it out of sight? Uh, and uh, what was the other song? Uh, oh, uh, I I wrote a song and got. Uh, will it go around in circles? Right, like just an amazing funketeer, you know, just amazing. Anyway, well, a lot of people might might know his later single, uh, "Nothing from Nothing." Oh, that's nothing. yeah. Oh, he did that on you SNL too. And he also wrote me. "You Are So Beautiful" that Joe Cocker made into an international hit. So he wrote that. Yeah, I oh, do. Oh, you know, oh. and again, he su- he did such great work with the Stones. He did so much great with the Beatles and solo work, and an amazing musician. And by all accounts, a beautiful man. But anyway, um, yeah, so, but I've got a feeling in captures, encapsulates, I mean, the whole holistic thing of, it's a very strong Paul rock and roll song. It's got a very strong John counterpoint. It's got Billy, it's Ringo and, and George or Groovin. And it's just, and it just, 
And oh, Paul sings his ass off on it too. You know, yeah. like he, Paul can sing rock and roll. Like he's yes, so. he can. Um, is there anything you want to promote before I, I let you go? The rock and uh, the record store day podcast is still going strong. And we, there's an episode we did recently with Ethan Russell, the photographer from let it be as well as Giles Martin, mm. the uh, remixer and Mike McCartney. So it's an episode I'm proud of. And we have a new episode with uh, Krungbin, the dance group. And uh, also, Two guys from one of the guys from Wilco, Michael Jorgensen and Eric Paparozzi. They have a band called Lizard Music. That's our new episode of the Record Store Day podcast. So check them all out. Uh, it's a fabulous podcast. And everybody, I, I hope that everyone who listens to the Brando cast listens to that one as well. You're the best. I love your show. Well, <laughs> this is this is how I want my show to go. Okay, well. <laughs> so thank you, thank you, thank you, thank for being you. There. Of course. And to the rest of you, thank you so much for liking, listening, subscribing. So many great guests coming down the pike, but come on. Third time's a charm with Paul Myers. Blah, 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 blah. Thank uh, you. And, of course, the Brandercast is produced by Mr. Richard Sheltinga. So until the next time, cats and kittens. Oh,